All right, welcome to Objection to the Forum. This is Justin Humphreys. Today I've got Suzanne Neblett with Guaranteed Rate Mortgage. It's my understanding you're the, the branch manager, vice president of mortgage lending? That's right. Well, thank you for joining us. I know this is probably a very busy time for you. Very. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what uh, a residential home buyer or somebody looking to refinance their home loan can expect during this kind of frantic time and, and home lending. Sure. Well, there's a couple different things, whether it's a purchase or a refi, that can make a difference in what to expect. Um, I would say one of the biggest things right now that we're seeing is um, the guideline changes as it relates to self-employed borrowers is pretty significant. So we like to have plenty of time to do due diligence when calculating income and so forth with those. When did those guidelines change? They changed in June, July, just a couple of months into COVID. Some of them have loosened up a bit at this point, but it, it's still more strenuous than it was um, prior to COVID. And these are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guidelines. It's, it's not a guaranteed rate thing or any other lender. So we're all up against the same um, guideline changes and, and um, more stringent as it relates to self-employed borrowers. Well, I want to get back into that, um, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit later because it, it's something that I think is interesting. And, you know, I know a lot of kind of my colleagues are self-employed and have, I've heard some kind of mortgage horror stories as far as what, what's happened. But uh, I guess what, what I wanted to begin with more of a broad strokes type look at it is, um, you know, what are what do you see as far as kind of the factors that have caused the increase in volume right now? Well, interest rates in March just plummeted. And so that started um, the refinance boom. And even before, even before that, the purchase market, you know, we typically say it starts to get busy in the spring and, and we really kind of, um, it started so early. It started, it was more January, February, rather than end of March, early April, when it starts getting extremely busy. So that combined with the drastic drop in rates, um, it hasn't slowed down since, and it doesn't look like it's going to. Guaranteed rates a nationwide lender, isn't it? Yes, we are. So how would you say the Wilmington market compares, as far as new purchases, compared to some of the other markets that, you, that your company deals with? Well, we're in all 50 states, and here in Wilmington specifically, we've got number one market share by a pretty good margin. Um, we're doing my branch will do probably close to $500 million in mortgages um, this year. And so if you compare that to where we're more prominent in areas like Chicago, which is where we're based, and Philadelphia, where we're huge, um, our numbers don't touch theirs. But for tiny little Wilmington, um, you know, th those are some pretty hefty numbers. It, and we have two offices here, by the way. So you, you look at both of those, take that number I'm talking about and almost double it. Um, it it's a lot of, lot of volume going through. And I guess what I meant by the question is whether the kind of the, the volume that we're seeing in Wilmington is, is, is going on the same nationwide or I'm, I've seen a lot of kind of anecdotally, I've noticed a lot of people moving to Wilmington because they're in now in a, a permanent work from home situation where they don't want to live in a big city anymore because they can get a home and or they can get more value in Wilmington and, and pay a cheaper price. Or, you know, there's some other various people have various reasons, but I didn't know if that's just kind of something anecdotally I've seen with the people I'm dealing with here, or if that's kind of a trend you're noticing nationwide. Um, that, I mean, I think that people are moving from 
the bigger cities like New York, Chicago, um, to smaller places like Wilmington, just to kind of get out of the out of the mayhem or like you said. Um, I was just, I was bringing up that a lot of people were moving from kind of bigger cities to, to Wilmington or similarly situated places because of the, um, you know, the one, the difference in price and then, you know, maybe quality of life or may, who knows, but there's really no point in um, paying all the taxes and, and making the huge payment when you get to get the same value for half the price oh, in, absolutely. in a, in a I different mean, location. Yeah, we, we see that a lot. We see people, um, that are buying second homes down here in anticipation of moving here permanently when they retire, even more so um, now with COVID um, than previously. That's obviously, this has always been a destination for people moving from, from up north and other places. I can't speak as much to, to whether that's happening across the country, but I assume that people are kind of flocking from the bigger cities to the more laid back, um, you know, less lesser taxes, um, when they can work from home. How does, what does the market look like for somebody looking for an investment property or a second home? Is it, is it more difficult to get financing for that kind of purchase or are the same products available as somebody looking for a primary residence? For the most part, the same products are available. It's everything um, with regard to the different options, pricing and things like that on a loan um, are risk-based, right? So we know that if, if someone has, for example, a first mortgage, a second home with a mortgage on it and an investment property, they're more likely to make, if something, if they were to go into financial distress, they're more likely to continue paying the mortgage on their home that they live in, right? An investment property would probably be the last thing that, that they would pay if something happened. So, so everything is risk-based accordingly. Um, so, in other words, you have to put more money down on a second home. You have to put more money down on an investment property, more so than you would um, on a primary residence. And then, of course, the interest rates, ours are the same on a primary and second home, but um, with investment properties, those are going to be a little higher as well. For the second home situation, you mentioned that you'd have to make a larger down payment. Is I guess my understanding is conventional. You typically have to put at least 10% down. Um, we have several 3% options that are um, very common. A lot of people have a misconception that you have to put 5, 10, even 20% down, um, and you don't. And we even have 3% um, down options for people that are not first-time home buyers, which is also another thing that people are often surprised by. So lots of great affordable options out there. Yeah, when I, when I think about 3% down, I would presume that's government-backed loans, like an FHA or... or are uh, veterans loans are there different products that guaranteed rate has for that that have that three percent down payment option yeah so we've got um we've got all the government loans so fha which is three and a half percent down va which is zero percent down usda is also zero percent down of course but that depends on um, a couple of different factors whether the property or the borrower qualifies for those um but we've got 3% down um, conventional options as well. And some of them actually have reduced mortgage insurance on them. So they're a really, really great choice. Typically, if the credit is good enough, I'll put a 3% conventional beside an FHA loan and um, just talk through the differences and the benefits with the borrower. And um, you know, we make a decision together on which makes the most sense. 
Sure. And so is Guaranteed Rate a kind of a considered a brokerage or is it its its own mortgage company that services its own loans and things of that nature? So we're we are what's called a correspondent lender. So we have um, lots of different investors that we work with. The majority of what we do is direct with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Jenny Mae, all of the agencies. Um, on the jumbo side, we've got a core of, I'd say now, probably seven or eight really solid investors that we work with. Most of those are some, you know, the bigger banks that, that you'd be familiar with. And so um, we actually, all of our underwriting is delegated, meaning that even if the investor on the loan is going to be Wells Fargo, for example, we have guaranteed rate underwriters that underwrite it. It doesn't get sent out to a Wells Fargo, which is what the scenario would look like with a with a broker. Um, so that's how we that's how we differ there. Um, we have a very large servicing portfolio. So while we don't service all of our loans, we do service a large amount of them that get sold, especially to Fannie and Freddie. And I'd say over the past. Um, six months or so, I'm seeing that most every conventional loan that we're closing is staying with us for servicing. And servicing, the way I understand that is essentially collecting the payments. I guess that's what probably most people would perceive as being the owner of the loan, or that's who you, who you would think lent you the money would be your, your servicer. But uh, I've, I've learned that that's not necessarily always the case. That's but, exactly right. So typically the, in, the investor who, who put up the money for the mortgage is gonna be one of the agencies. And um, the servicer of the loan is, is simply that, like you said, they're there to collect payment, they're there to um, maintain the escrow account, for example, and pay out the taxes and insurance every year when they come due. And so they, they simply um, didn't have anything to do with the origination of the loan um, they're there just to maintain the service from the time that the loan closes. So I want to get back to kind of what somebody could expect if they're purchasing a home today. Uh, what are you kind of running into as far as turnaround times? Because I know that there's just there's so many things that that you can't control. Sure. You know, it might be an appraiser, it might be an attorney on title work, or it might be underwriters backed up or a combination of all three of those things. I mean, what, if you're out there looking to buy a home, how much lead time should you, should you give for, uh, for getting through the loan process? So we place a priority on purchases um, just because they obviously have a definitive end date that we have to meet. And so from a timing standpoint, if it's a conventional loan, 30 days is still perfectly doable. Um, it's pretty rare that people need to do them in less than that amount of time. Um, but if they do, we can certainly accommodate that, especially on a conventional loan. Um, depending on other factors, I'd like to see 45 days on a VA loan, for example. Um, we're seeing pretty extended turn times on VA appraiser, appraisals, um, and all appraisals really for that matter at the moment. But when you start working with the government loans, um, there are a few more things throughout the process that are that are um, less in our control, like having to send the loan out to VA or to USDA to get approved even after we've underwritten it. So those are all um, time elements that we don't really have control over. 
Understood. Well, how are you dealing with the the appraisal turnaround time issue? Because I'm kind of running into that a little bit with some of the transactions we're doing, where we're seeing a lot of things getting pushed back because of um, you know the appraisals just aren't getting back in time, and you know a lot of various issues. I'm sure Absolutely. the appraisers are very busy right now. They are. They they are um, underwater, and I don't think they they see light at the end of the tunnel, but. Um, so we have a couple of things in place to, to try to combat that. And one is we're able to requ request a rush um, with the appraiser and they charge us a $200 rush fee, which the borrower pays for. Typically what I'll do is if, if I have someone that does have to close within say 25 days and I feel like we're gonna be pushing it, I'll talk to realtors the realtors on both sides and just say hey here are our options we do have the uh, um, opportunity to rush it some borrowers will say i don't want to pay two hundred dollars um, to rush it and then i just explain if it comes in past the due diligence please know that you know you did have that option well i, I bought a new home last summer and i ended up staying at the, the town place suites because my loan didn't happen. Uh -oh. It wasn't with, wasn't with y'all, but I was, and I had to. That was the only place in town I could find where I could keep my dog. Oh, uh, most, most of the hotels didn't. So we were out, uh, we, we, which it was kind of a little bit ambitious. We tried to pull the sell one home by the other the same day. Well, one loan, um, you know, the, the buyer of our home was with, with you guys, guaranteed rate, and their, their situation happened on time. Um, I went with my bank, just my typical bank I work with, and I ended up at the, the Town Place Suites on on Eastwood with my dog for about four or five days. So it was, uh, oh it was disappointing. And I know those situations are, are stressful. Um, you know, when you're trying to pull all that off at the same time and wondering where you're going to go and what's going to happen with your stuff and that sort of thing. So that, that's, that's good that you guys have that expedite program. Cause, um, I've, I've certainly seen that cause some problems. The other thing that we're able to do, um, that really helps is on purchases, we are able to have our appraisers do desktop appraiser appraisals instead of going out and actually inspecting the property. Now that's not always ideal. We do give the option to our borrowers and the realtors have input on that, of course. Um, for example, if you've got a home that was fully renovated recently and the comparable homes that have sold weren't, then the everybody involved in the transaction is probably going to want the appraisal appraiser to actually go into the property uh, but we do have that option as well which people really appreciate and those are extremely fast well you, you mentioned that you prioritize uh, purchase transactions um, so I guess you know but there's there's also a refi boom going on right now absolutely oh. so we are locking refinances for 60 75 90 days depending on the situation what I tell borrowers is if I lock one for 75 days, I do not at all anticipate that we will use up that entire 75 days. Um, but they are taking every bit of 45 to 60. So the way that our process works is that we don't submit, a, in, except for in rare cases, we don't submit a, a refinance into underwriting until the appraisal comes back. So the good news is we also have um, a process on the refinance side where if we're refinancing, if the borrower's existing loan is with Fannie Mae and we lock them in with Fannie Mae again, 
the, the appraiser can do an exterior only appraisal. So that saves a bit of time as well because they don't have to schedule the inspection with the homeowner. And so in those cases, the appraisals typically come back pretty quickly and then the loan goes straight into underwriting. And um, so there, there are some that close within the 30 to 45 day range. I would say right now, what's more typical is 45 to 60, anything beyond that, it's would have been caused by some rare circumstance something that happened in the middle of the transaction and when you say Fannie or Freddie so I, I that I know that those are some of the agencies and would they be are they the underlying investor in these loans or how yes. do, okay yeah understood so there's a couple terms that that kind of get thrown around a lot that I kind of wanted to get into and I'd like more clarification for myself but I think it helped people that are listening because sometimes um, you know, they get used inter- interchangeably and, and it can it can lead to some confusion. You know, the first thing I want to talk about is getting pre-qualified. Mm-hmm. So typically, I think from a, a borrower's perspective or somebody going through the process, um, you, you tend to feel like you're done once you get pre-qualified. Or you feel, you know, that's, that's from what I've seen, that happens once you submit your tax documents and your, um, your pay stubs and fill out your application. Um, what what is what does it mean to be pre-qualified? To be pre-qualified means that, and you talk about different terms that can be used interchangeably. Some people say pre-approval. Some people say pre-qualification. They those two things can mean different things even at different companies. Um, what we issue are called pre-approvals, and they are based on me collecting a full application having a verbal converse, verbal conversation about um, income with self-employed borrowers. We would never issue a pre-approval without having tax returns. A lot of the loans that we do, the majority of the loans that we do, do not require tax returns. Um, and we've got internal verification systems where I can verify income on a lot of borrowers without even having to collect pay stubs. So what that allows me to do is issue a pre-approval without getting a bunch of documentation from a borrower. How do you do it? Was that through the um, unemployment office numbers or how, how are you able to verify income without? We have verification systems in place. It's almost like um, a credit pulling a credit report that shows you all of the person's debts. Um, different employers, a lot of times bigger employers, um, like the hospitals, um, PPD, for example, are signed up with different uh, employer verification systems, and we pull from those. Gotcha. Um, so that's, but I guess that's essentially kind of a pre-screening. So that that may be before your your credit's been pulled. No, we would we would pull your credit um, as part of the pre-approval process, and you know we're we're looking at three different things: um, credit, income, and assets. And so we, we, um, we don't have to fully document all of those things to issue a pre-approval, meaning we don't have to get copies of your homeowner's insurance um, policy if you own other properties, little nitty gritty things like that. We collect when we go under contract and put the um, loan into process. When it goes to an underwriter, that's who puts their seal of approval on it and and issues a loan commitment. So you you jumped to my next term, which is is perfect. I was going to ask you about underwriters. So now do the underwriters, 
work for the, do you, do you have your own underwriters or is that like a third party auditor that that's looking at your at, at your files or at the borrower's file? We have our own underwriters, and so um, as I mentioned earlier with. Um, USDA for example when we underwrite a USDA file after the underwriter has done their initial review it has to go to USDA and they essentially underwrite what we have underwritten um, aside from that everything is delegated meaning we do the underwriting on it um, even with the jumbo loans like I mentioned earlier it, so is underwriting essentially is it verification of the information that's in the pre-approval or is there is there added layers to what an underwriter is looking looking at when yeah that, there's lots of added layers that that's a great question and a great way to put it um so they so yes they are validating everything that they've told us um and that we've entered you know into the application and they're also um there are so many different guidelines and little different things um, with the different investors that you know our goal is to we would never issue a pre-approval on a loan that we aren't fully confident will close um, but it is called a pre-approval for a reason and we are not underwriters as the loan officer do you ever run into situations where you pre-approve pre somebody but they don't make it through underwriting it's very rare. Um, if I'm trying to think of a specific, well, I've, I had one. Uh, well, that did close. Never mind. Um, it's rare. Because yeah. I was thinking thinking about it, and that's what was kind of frustrating for me in my town place suites experience is that I got, you know, it was, it was about day to close, and they said, "All right, good news, you're in underwriting." I was like, "Wait a minute, what's what are you talking about?" And they're like, "Well, we, we're gonna." We got to approve your loan. I was like, well, I thought I was approved when I submitted because you know, I'm self-employed, so I had to submit a, a ton of information. So I was like, I thought I got approved um, when I submitted all the information. Like, oh no, 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 no. That's you were qualified. We were qualifying you then at that point. I was like, all right, when am I going to close? Well, I don't know. It'll be two to seven days. And so then I met out there at the uh, you know at the the town place suites, and uh, it was disappointing. But I didn't understand what's going on. I was like, why did I? Why did you need to see all this information? If if that if that wasn't gonna guarantee me getting the loan, or if that wasn't gonna be what, yeah, what so was determinative. There's really three stages of approvals, if you want to think of it that way. So one is pre-approval. That means we have a conversation. I run it through what's called automated underwriting, which is essentially the computer looking at all the different aspects of my application, saying yes, this is gonna be a good loan. Now you have to go back up everything that you've put in here and prove it on paper and so forth and then the second level is the initial approval when we have loan commitment and that's what clears the due diligence so when you have a due diligence date there's two things that have to happen before that date um, one is the, for the appraisal to come in and the other is to have that loan commitment and the loan commitment says um, yes everything um, looks good we've validated let's say 90 to 95 percent of the documentation and everything that was turned in in the application and now there are four or five remaining conditions that we have to collect from the borrower and then when we collect those items it goes back into underwriting for what's called clear to close 
And those those are the three. You know those so, words. Well, that's that was, that was the next one on my list was clear to close. But so I guess from from where you want to be as a realtor or a or a borrower or purchaser, you, you want to make sure you've got your loan commitment by the due diligence deadline. Correct. And, and so that's pretty much where I guess something could always come up in underwriting if you can't prove it. But I guess if, if you don't have supporting documentation, but it once you get your loan commitment, is it essentially if what you've communicated is accurate, you're going to get your loan? Yes, it, it's very rare to very rare to get loan commitment and then not close on a loan. Um, like you said, things things could potentially come up. Um, I had someone recently that was going through um, a divorce and we were trying to prove that she didn't make the mortgage payments on the house that he kept. And so, but he would not agree to give her the bank statements showing that he was paying the mortgage um, because it was not at an amicable divorce. Yeah, that sounds um, typical. So, you know, and, and we ended up working through it and, um, so that closed, but but it is rare, and it would be something like that. Now, the other thing that can happen is um, there are pre-closing audits that can happen, and those are fully at random, and those can cause, um, you know, require more documentation. So I think, you know, that's part of what people don't like is when we have to go back and ask for more when they yeah. thought, hey, you already said I was good to go. But you're really not good to go until until the very end. Who initiates these audits? Is it is it your company or is it the investors or the agencies? It could be any of those. Gotcha. Yeah, that and that's what that's what I think frustrates a lot of people. There, and when I'm sitting down at the closing table with people, um, the, the two things that really get people worked up is the loan application. You know, and that goes one of two different ways. Sometimes they get confused where to sign and and what what it is. And then the, another thing is. Well, the numbers aren't exactly accurate to the penny anymore because you did the application several weeks or months ago. Sure. And so some people, you know, don't, they're just like, whatever, it's where do I sign? Other people are breaking out their phones and like, well, wait a minute, this says that my balance of the credit card is this, but it's really that. And, and it's kind of like, well, it doesn't, you know, it's just what I tell people is what matters is if your financial position is the same or better. That's, that's sure. what you need to know. Yeah. But if you bought a car or you bought a truck or a boat or something like that or bought new furniture the day before, then that's the kind of thing you need to update and let people know. Absolutely. Now that used to, I feel like that's an issue that kind of the real estate community has done a good job educating people about. Because when I've, I've, I've probably been doing real estate since maybe 2013. I, I, I kind of switched over midway through um, my career. And when I first started off, I would have the guy that buy, bought the new truck like the day before his closing and, and things like that. Like it, it, it had happened where that would, um, botch deals or, or or another common one which I'm kind of sympathetic towards is the going to rooms to go and furnishing your house mm -hmm. you know on zero percent interest because it seems like a good deal and you don't have maybe you're getting a bigger house and don't have the furniture or whatever it might be and so you want to have it ready to to be moved in but that that ends up um, jeopardizing your credit and and changing your debt to income and all that stuff and, and so it seems like people are aware of that these days mm -hmm. <laughs> we still see it. We still see it. And, you know, it, it all goes back to setting expectations. We, I have a, um, a flyer that's called protecting your pre-approval that I give people along with the pre-approval that basically says, don't do these things, make sure you do these things. Um, and 
we tell people don't buy anything, don't um, open new credit cards, don't go buy a car, don't go buy a boat, don't basically don't do anything with your money without running it by me first. Um, but it happens. And that was some that was a mistake I made last year. Um, you know, around that time is I. I opened like a, a zero interest card and did a, ba- a balance transfer. They're like, wait a minute, what have you done? You've opened a new credit. I was like, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm saving money. Like, no, this is terrible. You've, you've changed this. And uh, it, it kind of didn't make sense to me intuitively, but I guess from a, a auditing perspective, I mean, they they don't know that I'm going to, I guess, run up the, the card I just, bal- I just transferred over. I guess it might not show that I paid that card off on the statement yet. And there's some... Yeah, it can it can do a couple of different things, and and there are instances where it's really not a big deal, um, but it's it's hard to say what will and what won't be before it happens because we don't know what that person's going to do. Um, but if you've got somebody with a um, a pretty tight debt to income ratio, in other words, if they add even two hundred dollars worth of debt to their monthly debt load, that's going to push them over the limit. Um, but of course you can go when you go to buy a car or to um, buy appliances for the new house and and get a credit card at Best Buy they don't care they're not looking at your debt ratio they're not you know that's not part of their parameters and so those things can affect the mortgage and put somebody over they might be thinking oh gosh well it's only $200 a month that's not gonna mess me up but something that little can Um, again it doesn't always mess things up, but what it does always do is it always causes the need for further documentation. And that's, again, one of the biggest complaints that people, no matter the company, have with the mortgage process is the amount of documentation that has to be yeah. collected. I, I always think sometimes it's, I like some of the explanation letters um, because you'll tell that it's like a, a frustrated borrower who's written this. And uh, a lot of times like it was one, one loan I had, uh, or one closing, it was, um, for some reason they wanted an explanation letter about whether, because it was a self-employed person, whether the, the company had um, taken out a PPP loan. And mm-hmm. she wrote a letter, my business is so successful, I didn't need payroll protection, or something was how she wrote that, that letter. And you could tell she it was an annoyance thing. Why am I having to write this letter right. to say I didn't get a loan, or something like that. It was... Uh, and that, that's another thing... Um, that I think is so important and that I try to be very clear about up front is we're never, ever, ever going to ask you for something that we don't actually need. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it, it doesn't matter why we're asking. Um, you don't have to understand it. You know, I do my best to help you understand, but I have, you know, I had someone lately uh, recently say to me, well, I've, I've never heard of that. that. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not doing that. And she hadn't bought a home. She was selling her house that she lived in for 30 years. And so she hadn't done a mortgage in 30 years, and she wasn't doing something that the underwriter asked of us because it didn't make sense to her. And so, you know, we don't want to chase down documents that we don't need, and we're not going to. So I tell people, don't ask questions. 
promise we're not going to ask for a bunch of stuff that we don't need because that just bogs down everybody. Are you the one gathering the documents and telling the, the borrowers what they what, what you need or is that a, an underwriting or, or a function of um, the, the people that are involved in that kind of auditing process? So in the beginning, um, I'll give the borrowers an electronic to-do list and they upload documents to our portal. I don't collect documents. I don't want people sending me documents because I have an entire team of processors, one that handles the front end of the process, one that handles it after it comes out of underwriting. They're the ones that um, collect and manage the documents through our online system. And so that, you know, that makes it easy. It's a very secure portal. There's not a lot of email back and forth, not a lot of paper pushing. Um, and then the underwriter is the one that after they do that initial review and issue loan commitment, they'll give us a list of the remaining items that we need. And then the processor on the back end will collect those from the borrower. Yeah, I, I, you kind of mentioned something that, you know, with the woman that said that, you know, I've, I've never had to do this. And it, that, that seems that's kind of one of my pet peeves about real estate related things. I don't know how many times I've heard some variation of this statement. It's, I've been doing this for a blank amount of years and I've never seen this or I've, I've and, and it's like, well, I'm not making it up or, you know, or yeah. it's not, I, I had a woman tell me I, she's been buying and selling properties her, her whole life and she's never heard of having to sign a deed or something. I was like, it's just the way, the way it, I don't know how, how your other experiences were, but I'm not making up the, the, um, the deed requirement. It's, it's yeah. nothing new. Right. And sometimes, you know, people, if they're stubborn and don't want to do something, I guess they just have to decide, do, yeah. do they want the house or not? And, it, you know, that, that's up to them. We can't make them do something, but we can't give them a loan if they don't meet the underwriting requirements. So, so the final phrase on my list, and you already brought it up, clear to close. What, mm -hmm. What's that mean? That means that it's been given the final seal of approval from the underwriter. That means that all of the conditions, um, the conditions that we or the documentation that we collected up front has all been signed off on. Um, all of the documents are up to date. So in other words, if we needed um, a most recent pay stub, it, it means there are no trailing things that still have to be done. Now there are a few items, especially with COVID, that we have to do even after the loan is clear to close. We have to collect um, a most recent pay stub within five days of closing and do a verbal verification of employment just to show that the person still has a job, isn't furloughed or anything like that. Um, but ultimately, clear to close means, okay, the underwriting portion of this process is done. Now it has to go into closing to get prepared to send you the package to balance the, the closing disclosure with you and, and to get that to the borrower. So, and I'm presuming that that employment verification, so that's the, that's a way that maybe the agencies put additional requirements for, for your traditional W-2 employee. Yes. But earlier when we were talking, you mentioned that some restrictions or some um, guidelines had changed for the self-employed. Now, I believe you said those were COVID-related. They are. And, and the thought behind it, and again, these are agency guidelines, is that you know in the past we would base self-employed income on prior year's tax returns and so the agencies now say well we don't they don't consider covid to be a one-time thing of the past they consider it to be something that's ongoing and or unknown 
where you know where it will go obviously and so they want to show not only past income but stability the key is stability so a restaurant owner for example um, did, did they have to shut down yes they would have had to shut down for at least a couple of months likely and so we want to look at their income during that time, compare it to past income, compare it to a profit and loss statement for year to date, as well as the last two bank statements for the business. And so that's that's way more documentation that was traditionally needed on a conventional loan, on a conforming loan. Um, but now we have to get to get all of that. So that's something because, and I've I've run into that a little bit where it was kind of like folks have had the option of presenting a audit you know CPA audited P&L or the their QuickBooks P&L plus bank statements and I was always I was thinking well you know a, a business bank statement will tell part of the story but it's hard to really tell from a P&L I guess you could look at what was the balance in the beginning of the month and what was it in the end, mm-hmm. end of the month is this company bleeding um, profits I guess that that'd be a pretty easy thing to tell if you're, if you're taking a two month picture of it right and that that's what that's what we do we we have a spreadsheet that we have to submit we have a whole team of people that work on an income desk and their whole job is to review self-employed income before it gets submitted into underwriting to make sure that we're using accurate numbers and so we look at the bank statements we look for um, and we have to have a conversation with the borrower it's pretty time-consuming but we are looking for things that are um, non-recurring business expenses, for example. So if they have a $5,000 payment to the IRS, we can add that back in because they're not gonna be paying that every single month. Um, or the um, the PPP loans, we would back that out of income because that's non-recurring income. And then of course we'd have to hit them for the, the debt associated with that as well. So just kind of looking through the bank statements, looking for big things that stand out that may or not be typical, and then coming up with a good um, income number based on those bank statements, and then looking at the P&L to make sure that that's consistent with the bank statements, then look at the tax returns for the past two years and make sure that all of those are still in line. And if they're not, then you start to ask more questions about why, um, just to determine the stability of the income of the company. You, you mentioned uh, jumbos earlier, and, and from my understanding, jumbo loans or mortgages where you're getting over a little bit over five hundred thousand. I don't know the exact number. It's five hundred ten thousand four hundred dollars. Wow, I'm impressed <laughs> that you've got that. So, what does that mean to you as a borrower if you're borrowing more than that? What is is it a substantial rate hike that that you're going to experience, or when you're when you need a jumbo loan, how's that going to differ from from your traditional conventional loan? The guidelines are um, different with jumbo loans. They all require two years worth of tax returns, no matter the investor. So that's that's a pretty significant difference, and that's whether you're self-employed or not. I'd say from an underwriting standpoint, that's probably the biggest difference. Um, at most lenders, you are going to see a pretty significant um, difference between um, conforming rates and jumbo. At guaranteed rate, um, th- one of the, the best things about our pricing is that our company gives us the option to take a reduced commission. So they say, hey, on these jumbo loans, in order to have the very best rates, if you'll cut your commission, we'll cut our revenue. 
and that way you can be sure that nobody will ever beat you. So I've got um, quite a few jumbo loans in process right now. Um, I've got uh, two different ones with two different loan amounts. And actually, as the loan amount gets higher, the rate gets better, which is crazy, but that's just how it works out. So mm -hmm. I've got um, two 30-year fix locked right now, one at uh, 2.75 and one at 2.875, with zero points on jumbo, which wow. is just, it's unheard of. I mean, those are, a lot of lenders right now don't even have that on conforming loan amounts, rates that low. So it's, um, our pricing is very, very competitive in the jumbo space. Well, yeah, I, and I'd always just, it's kind of one of those kind of just things you hear. I'd always just heard that uh, the jumbo rates were, were really high and that you you didn't want to take out a mortgage if it was over that amount, but that's yeah, that sounds outstanding. Yeah, it's um, it's it's another one of those myths. And again, it, that is that is very true with, with, I would say, the majority of lenders. Um, and it's just like I was saying earlier, looking at conventional versus FHA for somebody that wants to put 3% down. If I've got somebody that um, is buying a house for 650000 for example, we can look at how much it would cost to um, do the first mortgage at five, ten, four hundred, and maybe have a second equity line or something like that um, to utilize for the rest of the down payment versus a jumbo. And with our pricing where it is right now, it always makes sense to do the jumbo because the rates are that good. One of the things that's kind of been interesting to me is kind of the the reluctance in North Carolina to get into the the e closing transactions and I know that there's a big push and, you, and guaranteed rates one of them that, that really pushes for as much digital as possible mm -hmm. and trying to push for paperless what do you see is is kind of the the reason that hasn't really been adopted by most of the lenders doing business in North Carolina um, so we do we have a process that's called flash close and essentially what that is is that 95% of the closing package is signed electronically so we send a link to the bar where the morning of closing and they electronically sign all of the package except for the documents that have to be notarized. So there are, depending on the type of loan and, and the state and that type of thing, um, you know, four or five, maybe six documents that actually have to be ink signed. So that takes the closing from 60 minutes to 10 or 15 max. Yeah, and I think that's fantastic. I, I love that. Um, but what I what I was talking about is kind of we have e notary available in North Carolina, but I, I see the majority of the or really I mean I say the majority I mean it's ninety nine point nine I think we had one person um, one company try to utilize our e notary services and I was just wondering why that is as far as if people just don't feel comfortable with it yet or or what the rationale would be but it seems like I know a lot of a lot of um, lenders for vehicles and things like that are going to all electronic and I was just surprised that it hadn't happened yet with the uh, with the the real property lenders um, well uh, one of the things I think is kind of cool about guaranteed uh, rate I was watching the um, the UFC fight last weekend and I thought it was pretty cool that or let's say last week it was Saturday afternoon I thought it was pretty cool that you guys were sponsoring um, UFC and NASCAR and some of them really have a, a kind of a creative motocross marketing. yeah you name it we're out yeah. there well, what would a lot of the folks that um, kind of watch this and, and that listen to it are, are attorneys? What would you like to see from the attorney? What can attorneys do to do a better job? Or what, what advice do you have for the attorneys that are that are uh, doing some transactional real estate work? 
we've we've got great local attorneys, so we don't we don't have a ton of complaints. Um, so, you know, speed, accuracy, that those are all the that's what we're focused on all of the time. And so we we hope that all of our partners are too. Um, but as you know, you, you, there are only so many hours in the day. You can only you can only um, do title searches so fast, right? Yeah. Um, so I think you know, with as it relates to any third party that we're waiting for, whether it's homeowners insurance, the appraisal, the title work, the faster we get it back, the better, just because that gives us more time to review it and make sure that what comes back on it doesn't have implications you know, that could further delay the loan. Gotcha. So it's the main thing, I guess, is get your, get your title searches done quickly. Yes. All right. Well, well that, that makes sense. And I think that's, that's certainly everybody's goal. It's been, uh, you know, it is kind of a busy time right now, but I think that's, that's certainly what you want to do, uh, to, to move it along quickly. For sure. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to, to talk to me and I learned a lot and I hope that the people that listened, uh, learned a lot as well. And do you have anything you want to, plug or do you have any where can people reach you if they if they want to get a loan from guaranteed rate absolutely so my name again is suzanne neblett and uh you can just google suzanne neblett guaranteed rate my website is rate.com forward slash suzanne neblett i'm obviously on facebook instagram all those places as well and i would love to help anybody that that's thinking about buying a home or refinancing and it's funny because even people that have um, bought homes within the past six or eight months are already refinancing it that's how fast the, the market has moved so, so. i was i was i was gonna kind of outro out of this thing and, and wrap it up but that brings up one question that i wanted to ask you that i forgot to ask you so i sometimes you'll hear like financial podcasts or or financial advisors and they'll say well you don't want to refinance a loan for the purpose of cutting your payment or reducing your interest unless you're under a certain percent reduction like I've heard a quarter percent a half percent some people say a whole a whole percentage point what, what do you have any do you have any hard and fast rules or any advice on that issue I don't have any hard and fast rules I know that some lenders do like to throw a certain number out there but if you look at the actual numbers it depends on so many different variables it, it depends on the loan amount it depends on how long you've had the loan it depends on what your goal is. You know, some people don't care about how much their monthly payment is. They just want to pay it off as quickly as possible. So back to the thing about loan amount. If I if I can reduce a million dollar loan um, by three quarters of a percent, it's going to have a way bigger impact than if I change if I reduce the rate on a two hundred thousand dollar loan, for example. So. In my opinion, there is no magic number. That's not everybody's opinion, but that's mine. I just kind of like to look at the entire situation and, and see what the goals are of the borrower and um, and go from there, make a good decision together. Well, that makes sense. Well, well, this time I really am serious. This time I really am done. So thank you for, for coming on. It was, it was very nice speaking with you. You too. Thank you. Thanks.